Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This podcast is brought to you by Green and Black's Velvet Edition, a delicious range of sumptuously smooth dark chocolate. You're listening to the Irish Times Women's Podcast. I'm Roisin Ingle. On today's episode, Cathy Sheridan speaks to the District Attorney of Suffolk County in Massachusetts, Rachel Rollins, the first woman to hold that particular office and also the first woman of colour to be appointed as a DA across the whole of Massachusetts. Later... I'll be talking to activist Rosa Thompson about the 2019 Rally for Choice, which takes place this Saturday, September 7th in Belfast. And if you're gathering for that, gather from 1.30pm. But first, Irish Times journalist Deirdre Falvey is here for the top of the show chat. Deirdre, thank you very much for coming down to talk to us from your busy desk on the feature floor in the Irish Times. Now, you're going to give us a bit of a preview of The Fringe because, as always, there's loads of great work being done by women and loads of topics that are very relevant to women being covered in these shows. So give us a few of the good ones that you found. Well, there's 77 shows in The Fringe. <laughs> okay, well, stop. we can't do them so all. It doesn't, there isn't one theme or anything. And actually, they, they've sort of grouped it under power in a general... The, the, the director, um, Ruth McGowan, has uh, categorised a lot of things uh, as uh, being about power but there are tons of shows that actually well I mean there's lots of work by women and but there's a lot of work that that is about women's lives and experiences in a very varied way there's a show that I think sounds like great fun called Two Fingers Up which has uh, Sion Simpson and Gina Donnelly um remembering their teenage selves and learning about riding from the religion teacher and... and uh, Two fingers up, I love it already. <laughs> well, it's, invi- it's inviting people to explore, yeah, to explore wanking, basically. Okay, um, we need I, more I don't think, talk I don't, about masturbation in this country, yeah, especially female it, masturbation. I don't think it's going to... I think it's just going to be talk. I don't think <laughs> there'll be any action maybe yeah. on stage. But um, there's also a show that sounds... Uh, a production that sounds really interesting, which is just a syndicate and it's in the forecourts and it involves the audience being jurors in a sexual assault case and so I think that that could be um, What's that one called? The Justice Syndicate Okay Sounds really interesting um, And this weekend the the, the North is Next is a, is a sort of a political activism uh, event um, that I think lasts the afternoon um, where they're commissioning a zine and they have a live podcast um, about queer and reproductive rights in the North and it's basically about uh, about uh, um, same-sex marriage and, and uh, abortion rights. Um, Alison Spittle is going to be in town with her show that's just come back from Edinburgh, Mother of God, and her first play, which is called Starlet, which is a dark comedy set in 2008 in Westmeath. Uh, there, there's a big music event which has workshops and, and performances by girls called Play Like a Riot Girl, which is going to run on Sunday. Um, there are... Um, th- there's a post-repeal um, show called Compostela and also Lux Alma, which is from sound designer and composer Alma Kelleher, who was the, the, the composer for Riot, which was which was such a riot in the fringe a, a couple of years ago. And I think she on. did Tara Flynn's show as well, Not a Funny Word. She did yes, the music I think that. So. She, and she, she's, she's terrific. She's wonderful. Yeah. yeah, so she's some electro uh, folk music uh, and, and by her by herself. Um, so there's also a float which is set in a sort of post-apocalyptic Dublin where the, the water has has uh, risen and um, people are trying to build a future. And that is Eve O'Connor and Hildegard Ryan uh, put that together. There are... Oh, look, at there are ton, there are tons of shows. There's Erin McGathy, the American comedian who we've had on the podcast, and she got a show as well. Yeah, she has a show called Al Dawes Fucking Loves You. Am I allowed to say that? I don't know. <laughs> You're allowed to say anything on the women's podcast. We're totally, you know, a little bubble to ourselves here. <laughs> um, her show, she is playing Al Dawes, who is 
a man who loves his girlfriend and she's left him for another man. And so it's inspired by true life events and it's about the stories we tell ourselves um, when everyone is watching. I think that sounds fantastic because Aaron is a brilliant comedian and a really clever writer. Mm-hmm. And that's one to lot because there's absolutely loads of stuff, isn't there? there t- you, you know, we were talking earlier about some shows uh, relating to women uh, in the fringe and actually there's tons, but there are, there are loads of really good things all over in the fringe. It's, um, yeah. So it's starting this weekend and it goes Runs on for, for the next two weeks. Two weeks. Yeah. So just get your diary out and pencil in a few things. And I suppose get the tickets early because things are selling out fast, aren't they? I know yeah. that, that one you mentioned, the Alison Spittle, uh, Stella. Is it Stella? It's called yeah. Starlet. Do you Starlet, remember the Starlet, sorry. the Toyota Starlet? Oh, I, think, yeah. I think that was figured in, <laughs> well, figure in some way. That yeah. show is selling out fast. I think there will be couple of tickets left so yeah get in there and, and thank you very much for that preview so we're going to talk about a couple of other things relating to women we can't um, have this episode without mentioning something about Westminster and Boris Johnson and all of that so he faced that double defeat in the Commons after MPs turned down his motion for a general election um, and there's been a lot of amazing speeches uh, very entertaining and you've got Jacob Rees-Mogg reclining there uh, as he did but Labour MP Jess Phillips um, was very, very uh, powerful on why she would not be voting for a general election and accused her Conservative colleagues of being cowardly. And we're just going to hear a little clip of that. The Prime Minister has stood in front and said, I don't want an election, I don't want an election. This is some game that three men in Parliament, in number 10 Downing Street, have come up with to try and game the system so that they win. My democratic responsibility is to try and do the absolute best for the people in my constituency. And at the moment, it's not all that clear. We're all a little bit confused. But I am absolutely not going to use them as a chitty in a game for the Prime Minister to achieve the ambition that he has only ever had for himself and never for this country. As Jess Phillips there. Yeah. Have you been glued to it? I think even people who are not that interested in Brexit and I've just been, it's been highly entertaining, but it also has. quite depressing, I think. In oh, ways. yeah. And actually the highly entertaining bit is kind of goes to the heart of what she's saying there. She's talking, you know, what are the one of the striking things being that, that uh, it's been treated like a game by so many people who are in power. And it's, yeah, when you get on, when you get beyond the amusement, it's, uh, that is quite terrifying. And I suppose the power of her anger um, there being is so palpable, um, and also saying what we're all thinking that these are public school boys playing a game and dicing with people's lives and their country's um, future. Yeah, so. I think Jess Phillips' contribution was really excellent, and another woman closer to home who had a brilliant contribution to Mike Pence, the celebrated homophobe and misogynist coming to this country. Our own Miriam Lord wrote an extraordinary colour piece, um, which managed to get shat in the headline, which I think might be a first for the Irish Times. Oh, wonderful! And it was saying that Mike Pence had sort of behaved like a a, a very. Um, someone, a highly anticipated guest come into your house who then shat all over the spare room carpet, which you'd bought especially for him. It's gone all over the world and has been viewed as one of our most clicked articles. It's unbelievable. It's quite um, delicious. A lot of Americans. <laughs> delicious is a good word. But um, no, I think she really hit the nail on the yeah. head. With oh, that. Miriam, she's fabulous. She's wonderful. So a little big up for Miriam Lord, another great uh, female commentator who we wouldn't be without. And finally, um, for women, a good news week because four of the six uh, books on the Booker shortlist that was announced this week are by women. Yeah. I think it's quite unusual, Deirdre. I, th- I think it is. And it it's, I suppose it. It um, to some extent you can read the list as foregrounding women's experiences and concerns more than the list has previously. I mean, there's there's Lucy Elman's Ducks and Newbury Report, which um, it's a very long book, I think. Yeah, and it's and it is about the domestic in uh, um, and how our consciousness is such a, a mix of everything from the domestic to politics that we're watching on the telly mm-hmm. to um, social stuff to. Uh, um, the fact that none of these things are are, are in discrete boxes. Um, the other the other women that are on the list, Margaret Atwood's The Testaments, uh, which we're going to be doing on our book club. So if if you'll be reading along, it's it's out on Tuesday. Yeah, and we're going to be talking about that. But that's going to be really interesting. Um, and Bernardine's uh, Bernardine Everest's 
Girl, Woman, Other, which tells the story of 12 black women, black British women um, in, a, in her poetic style. And Elif Shafek's 10 minutes, 38 seconds in this strange world, which um, it's, it refers to the final minutes bef- uh, experienced by an Istanbul sex worker after a fatal assault, which is a chilling um, concept. Yeah, well, I've read that book and it's actually... It's the only one on the list that I have actually read. But I, I interviewed Elif for oh, the Doki Book Festival and it's so powerful. Really brilliant. Yeah, there's this science that says that before you actually die, you're sort of still alive for this 10 minutes. Your brain is still functioning. So it goes through her whole life um, in uh, Turkey and the lives of her friends. It's really a book about friendship as well, but it's absolutely brilliant. Um, so her and Margaret Atwood, I'd be... Looking to for, see, yeah, yeah. I've been rooting for them, but I mean, I'm sure the uh, the the ducks new Newbury Port is intriguing as well. Mm. But I do think it's like a gazillion pages long, so I don't know if I'll get through <laughs> it. But dear Falvi, thank you very much. So the Fringe, the Booker, uh, it's all happening for women artistically. Uh, yes, yeah, good times, brilliant. Now, Rachel Rollins has been described as Boston's greatest hope to bring the criminal justice system into the wide, woke 21st century. Rollins, who was in Ireland this week for the Kennedy Summer School in Wexford, was elected as Suffolk County DA with a massive 80% of the vote earlier this year. Since then, she has become a lightning rod for Boston's law enforcement and political establishments due to her determination to reform criminal justice. In today's episode, she talks to Cathy about why her background gives her a unique perspective on the US criminal justice system, her father's Irish roots in County Mayo, and why she doesn't mind ruffling a few feathers to get the job done her way. They also discuss President Trump, of course, and Rollins talks about her successful lawsuit with fellow DA Marion Ryan preventing ICE agents, that's the US Immigration and Customs Enforcement officers, from scooping up illegal immigrants in state courthouses. Rachel, tell us a bit about Suffolk County, because in Ireland, a county is a small little place yeah. with a very small electorate. And Suffolk County sounds kind of cosy, but actually it's rather big. <laughs> it is. It's huge. So um, Suffolk County is Boston, uh, Chelsea, Winthrop and Revere and probably has, I'd say, a little over 800,000, um, maybe more than that, uh, people. And Boston, as you know, is the capital of Massachusetts. Um and it's a vibrant, wonderful, diverse place um, that's uh, – I, I have the pleasure of being the chief law enforcement officer of those um, different cities and towns. They're very different, though. So Boston has about 23 different neighborhoods in Boston. Chelsea is um, – you know, Boston has a mayor who's a very proud Irish man whose mom uh, is from uh, Ireland – and then Chelsea is has a city manager, um, very large, I would say, immigrant population there. Winthrop has a city manager as well um, and is a little more affluent. And then Revere is uh, has a, a mayor uh, there. But they're all separate and distinct, and I'm responsible for all four places. Which is astonishing. Mm-hmm. And you won through because yours is an elected office. Mm-hmm. You, run, you won by a landslide with about 185,000 votes, which is about 80% of the vote. Yeah. Now, can you tell us all how you did that? What did you do that chimed oh, with the man. voters? So, um, so this is the first time I'd never run for office before. Um, I had to win in the primary, which was back in September of 2018. There were five candidates, um, all strong, I would say, candidates uh, I think what I did well was I'm a little older than some of the younger people. You're that 40. Ran. 48, 48. Very proud to be 48. Um, and I did my due diligence before I ran. I knew that this was going to be my full-time job. Um, I love to say I'm good at everything I do because I only do three things right at a time. I love saying no because I think if you're going to put yourself out there Let's make sure we're successful when we do it. So like any good trial lawyer, I started with what is my closing argument going to be and moved backwards, right? How do I win and how long does that take me and what are all the steps that need to happen to get there? And we just were a grassroots campaign. I had an exceptional campaign manager, one of my best friends in the world, but we we made it work. And 
Um, I looked at it as a job and I gave everything. And I think what we did differently was I recognized it is a, a job interview with every single person you meet for nine months. Um, I thought about the long game and I was um, making sure that I had support in every nook and cranny of um, the electorate. Okay. You're a woman of color. Mm-hmm. Um, you're the first mm-hmm. to get this job, which is on top of everything else is remarkable. I think there were three women before you. Were two women before you? So there have never been a woman in Suffolk County elected ever. So I'm the first woman there and never been a woman of color in all of Massachusetts. Um, so there were two women in Middlesex County. So there are 11 district attorneys in Massachusetts. Middlesex has been diverse. They've had two females elected there. Suffolk had never had a woman since 1807 was the first DA in Suffolk County. Um, I am the 16th district attorney there and the first woman ever, and obviously the first woman of color uh, there and in the entire Commonwealth of Massachusetts. So, Rachel, there were several bold moves here on mm-hmm. your part. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, tell us a bit about what it was that distinguished you from the others. And, and the, the, there were aspects to this campaign that fascinated me, like the meeting in the prison and that oh, sort yeah. of thing. Yeah. So tell us a bit about that, the key points. Of, so uh, what I think separated me was I recognized very early what the job was. Right. A lot of a lot of the um, population had no idea what a D.A. did. They thought it was an appointed position. For example, they didn't understand the autonomy and how how much power you hold with decision making in our criminal justice system. And so what I did was I explained the D.A. doesn't try cases. She sets policy and procedures. She runs an office of. Um, 300 employees that I'm directly responsible for, but there's about 150 other ones that I decide whether or not they get to work with us. So, for example, Boston Police Homicide, you can't be in the homicide unit without the DA saying you can be in the homicide unit. You can be a police detective, but you can't be in the homicide unit without my oversight. $20 million budget, uh, 35,000 cases a year. So what I did was immediately distinguish myself from my four other colleagues because they'd never managed anyone in their life and they'd never been responsible for more than $20 in their pocket, let alone $20 million of a budget. So it is a CEO, it's an executive position. And when you recognize that, I don't care if you've tried 20 more cases than me. You're not going to be trying cases as the DA. You're going to be setting policy. You're going to be a change leader um, because what the people of Suffolk County wanted was a dramatic change from what the status quo had been. Okay, tell us what the status quo was and what you set out to change. So what the status quo was, was when you have money, the system works incredibly well for you. And when you don't, it doesn't. Period. End of story. And I like a lot of people look at me and you see my race, but... The biggest group of people that are impacted by the criminal justice system, it has nothing to do with your race and everything to do with your wealth. If you have money and you're black, you do pretty damn well in our criminal justice system. If you don't have money and you're white, you don't. It does not matter the, the, the pigment or the hue of your skin. It matters how much green you have in your wallet. So if, if you can pay a good lawyer. If you can pay a good lawyer, the system works incredibly well for you. Um, I like to, you know, I'm obviously from the United States, Kevin Spacey from, um, you know, who's been in virtually every single movie. House of Cards. House of Cards, which, you know, and Robin Wright Penn is fantastic in that, by the way. But anyways, Kevin Spacey got in some trouble on the uh, in Nantucket, which is the Cape and Islands. And um, it was all over the front page of our news for weeks, right? Front page. Um, great lawyer, dismissed, right? Now, granted, there were issues in the case, but I can assure you if I went to Nantucket and groped somebody and couldn't afford a lawyer, I would not, my case wouldn't have been dismissed. I can assure you of that. Um, Not only because I know the DA there, but because I am a DA. And so what I did was um, I said, your your zip code shouldn't matter. Um, You're going to have a leader in this office that does the right thing, whether you have a good criminal defense attorney or not. And I have said something that people think is controversial, but it is not, is I represent the, co- the victim, of course, the community, and also the defendant. 
because it's the Commonwealth versus this individual, this defendant, and the defendant is part of the Commonwealth, as is his or her family, and they are a member of the community. And what people at first thought, oh my God, that's ridiculous. You know, what is she talking about? But when we think about individuals, often children that have been uh, the victims of sexual assault, we know data show that oftentimes, sadly, they offend. They harm people because they've been harmed. So I have many cases right now as the DA, Kathy, where I am looking at a victim um, who is also a defendant in a different case because they've harmed. And we have a lot more empathy when it's a sexual assault victim. But what we also have to understand in our violent crimes, and my detective here from the Boston Police Department who's been in the sexual assault unit and the, the homicide unit, many of the individuals that are deceased and the victims of a homicide have been defendants in non-fatal shootings or other homicides before. So it is an interchangeable movement on either side of the V, we call it, versus, right? Um, so... I have to treat you with dignity and respect no matter who you are. I have to speak to your family even if their loved one has been accused of doing something egregious because that very family might be able to help me solve several other unsolved crimes even though their loved one is a defendant. So we just started talking differently. I started sharing things about my background that I know what it feels like to visit not only in the same courtroom I used to prosecute people, in, in the federal courthouse in Boston, I sat as a sister of a defendant and I was treated differently by the people I used to work with. I felt it. They weren't overtly rude, but I could feel a change. And if they treated me different, imagine what it feels like when you're a person walking in and you aren't fluent in the English language. You and don't Rachel, that. that was actually part of, of, of what you brought to the campaign, mm-hmm. was that your own, you, through your own family, you had sure. experience of the criminal justice system. Absolutely. Tell us a little bit about your siblings. So my siblings are amazing. And like most families, we're complicated and we are... I'm flawed. And, you know, I can say anything bad about my family and often do, but no one else is allowed to. Right. So but what I can tell you is, sadly, my brothers are, you know, have some mental health issues, but also struggling with addiction. And I've never said that they were framed. They've made terrible decisions, but I still love them. And I when I speak to young people, I say you can love people and not agree with the choices they make. Right. And so one of my brothers, I'm the guardian of his 10 year old daughter. Um, Another one of my brothers, thank God, has no children. Right. But what I can tell you, he's not ready. Um, But what I can tell you is I have a younger sister that's in recovery and I'm the guardian of her six year old daughter. I have a beautiful 15 year old daughter myself, but I know what it feels like to have the Department of Children and Families in my life. It's not because I've done anything wrong. I'm a kinship foster parent. Um, but I have oversight in my life because DCF calls and says, we need to get to your house and see the kids and how they're doing. And I know what that feels like. I'd never try to imply that I know what having probation or parole or, or people like that, but I have government oversight in my life as a result of mental health issues, substance use disorder, and, uh, the opioid crisis, which is rampant in the United States. And when people hear that, No matter what your um, bank account says, you cannot find a home in Massachusetts that has not been impacted by the opioid crisis. You just, you cannot. Even if they say it's not me, but my loved, you know, my neighbor's son OD'd or daughter, you know, is, is struggling with addiction right now. And we, and you know, my neighbor who's 72 has a four-year-old right in their house. So we're seeing in the foster system, um, a lot of families stepping up, but three generations older watching younger children. So I think what, what, what with my family is we're going to, we're going to get back. We're going to get back to being, um, you know, the best that we can each be. But right now we're fractured because two of my two brothers are currently incarcerated. Um, my youngest sister is doing quite well. And then my other sister, um, is the executive director at the Red Sox Foundation. 
Um, we teasingly, the two That's of a us, more cheerful which story. is wonderful, right? <laughs> but the two of us, Rebecca and I write each other the same Christmas card every year where it just says, if you try to leave the family, I will find you and kill you. <laughs> and then we just smile at each other and then look around the room. But, um, but again, we, we are a great family. We're a strong family. I promise you. While we're talking about family, Rachel, just, just let's have a quick chat about your parents mm-hmm. because it's kind of fascinating. You're here for the Kennedy summer school in Wexford yep. and you're father turns out to have strong Irish roots. That's right. That's right. So my dad's um, second generation uh, immigrant, uh, County Mayo, um, they are about 16 miles out of Westport. Was he a Rollins? Or um, was he, was he, he is a Splain. So Rollins is my married, uh, I'm uh, too much information, but I'm divorced, but I kept <laughs> my last name because I want my daughter and I to have the same last name. Um, when Idris Elba marries me, I'll change my name to his last name. This is that's a shout out to beautiful Idris Elba. But um, anyway, so Idris me, Elba, I hope you're listening. Oh my God, I hope you're. He's married. <laughs> um, well, <laughs> so my parents met. My dad and is uh, 71, and my mom um, as well. They met back in 1968 in Boston. Uh, my dad, as I, as you know, as I said, is Irish American, and my mom's family's from Barbados. Um, and Boston was not the sort of welcoming, diverse place that it is has become now. Um, and so my dad and mom fell in love, and uh, their families were each not that happy. My dad's no, mixed family, race marriage, I mixed race Rachel. marriage, yes, yeah, yeah, was really tough back then. They are about to celebrate forty nine years of marriage. Yep. Um, uh, and so were well, they're in their 49th year next year, we're going to be celebrating 50 years of marriage with them. And they're amazing. Like they've been, you know, through struggles, um, as, as every marriage is, I'm sure, but that is a huge feat, um, that they've remained married for 50 years and they are two of my favorite people on the planet. Well, that brings us back to yourself and how you came up through the system, Rachel, yeah. and managed to, you won scholarships. Tell us, tell us about how you came up through the system before we go back to the whole campaign and yeah. the, the roast so about that, that was. I'm the oldest. I think my dad wanted a boy. Um, and so he, I spent a lot of time with my dad. He taught me from a very young age that I... He was I, in the military, was he? For, oh, yeah. Yes. So my dad is a Vietnam War veteran. He was a Navy corpsman. Um, He was a corrections officer from a very young age. You know, I was athletic. He brought me everywhere with him um, and always. You played lacrosse. Yeah, I played lacrosse. Um, He instilled in me the belief that you don't wait for anything, right? Like so, or when I entered high school, for example, I thought like, oh, I'll play on the freshman team. And he said, why? You're going to make varsity. Well, nobody as a freshman, I don't care about nobody. You're going to try. And why wouldn't you? You're, they're no better than you. And, and so it just, it's a paradigm shift. It's a change to say like when people say like, oh no, the rules say, and I'm like, right, okay, we're doing it this way, right? And so what's beautiful now is as the boss, that's easy. When you're not the boss, it's not as easy. But yeah, my father instilled in me just an incredibly strong work ethic and the fact that nothing's impossible. And so, you know, I was fortunate to be a really good athlete um, and made var- a varsity as a freshman for lacrosse and several other sports. But and you won a scholarship to yeah, that school. I had you? a full scholarship to go to college. And then what was interesting is after my freshman year, um, the women's lacrosse team was cut due to budget cuts, as was the women's volleyball and the women's tennis teams. Our men's football team, and I mean American football, not soccer, um, who hadn't won a game in about two years, had 75 full scholarships, um, they didn't get a single scholarship cut. I didn't know a lawyer. I wasn't, you know, we didn't grow up with people that um, were judges, but I knew what was fair and what wasn't. And some of the female athletes got together and we got a lawyer and we threatened a lawsuit under what's called Title IX, which is gender equity. And we got all three female teams reinstated. And that was my sort of first intersection with the law. And I thought, this is amazing. Lawyers make a change. Nobody listened to our voice when it was just athletes talking about it. But we got this wonderful woman um, from a law firm in Boston 
who showed up with a draft lawsuit that she was about to file, and miraculously everyone started listening and things started changing. So it was that moment when I knew I wanted to be a lawyer. What age were you then? So I was probably about 19 years old, um, and it was great. Rachel, did you, um, were you arrested for a misdemeanor when you were 19? Oh, so yes. So Sorry what, about that. No, that's fine. No, no, no. And what's interesting, I love, I mean, this is why I love saying words matter. So I received a summons in the mail when I was 19, um, and and it's often spoken of as an arrest. And I like reminding people when you hear the word arrest, you assume that I was driving down a highway at 100 miles an hour, throwing bricks of cocaine and cash out of, you know, a sunroof while I shot off an assault rifle, right? I literally walked out to my mail and got a summons that told me I had to show up in court um, for a misdemeanor of receiving stolen property under $250. What else happened was I was told by a public defender, if you do something called continued without a finding, we call it a quaff in the United States, um, it'll never, it, you aren't going to get in trouble again. You're a division one athlete. You're at a good school. Your, your grades are good. Um, if you don't get in trouble within the next year, this will go away. And I believe them. And I just to get this done and not have to tell my parents and all the other things, I took a quaff. And what you learn now is when you quaff, you have to admit to sufficient facts in front of a court, number one. And number two, it's on your record. So when you run my record, it says, you know, receiving stolen property under 250, dismissed. But when my record is run, something comes out. Now, the good news is that was when I was 19. It was some, I can't do the math, but, you know, nearly 30 years ago, let's say. Even still, when I became an assistant United States attorney in the Department of Justice and the FBI had to do my background check, I had to disclose that, right? When I was appointed by the governor to the Judicial Nominating Commission, I had to disclose that to the state police. When I was the first female general counsel of different state agencies, I had to continue disclosing this. And that was a constant reminder of the fact that we send people, and of course, there was no jail time I don't even think there was a fine. It was just don't get in trouble again and then this will go away. But even when we send people to jail, we continue to brand them with the bad thing that they've done in our criminal justice system, right? So when you apply for a job five years later or three years later, we're still reminding people of misdemeanors that they're done. I'm not talking about violent crimes. I'm not talking about rape and murder, but I'm saying that I think we need to think differently about the system. Now, Rachel, this was a huge part of your campaign, actually, and a huge part of the blowback you've had since, Mm -hmm. which was you promised not to prosecute for certain very low-level non-violent crimes. What I said was, as a candidate, um, let's think differently about this system, right? Let's think about what is clogging up the system I have limited resources as the DA. Do I want to spend my time prosecuting trespassing, you know, or loitering charges or 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 do I want to try to solve unsolved homicides? Right. Like if I ask the person who's mad that there's a homeless person in a park across the street from their house, whether I want them to solve the murder of their loved one or spend Boston police hours on, you know, a a sting unit on this homeless person in front of your house. I don't think it's a hard decision to make. Um, I would rather get that homeless person housing or mental health uh, assistance if they need it, um, or a bed to sleep for the evening. Um, and what I think I explained well in my sort of speaking as a candidate, and then I've issued a memo as the DA is I'm the last catch basin at the end of any number of societal failures. And what the criminal justice system is doing is we are stepping up and doing things that it's not our responsibility. Like the overwhelming number of people that come into our municipal and district courts, not all of them, but I'd say over half of them have a substance use disorder, a diagnosed mental illness, and are um, are homeless, or uh, you know, uh, are are struggling in some way in their lives. What and percentage I, did you say there? I would I would comfortably say 
close to 50%, if not more, of the municipal and district court cases, there is somebody with that issue. And if you've never, if you don't have a significant criminal background and you come forward to us in a case and we know that you are on drugs right now when you're in court, or we just recently had some protesters that were arrested, if we, you've never been arrested before and you aren't charged with violence, you're, you're charged with you know, let's say trespassing or disturbing the peace, can we convert it to a civil matter and not a criminal matter? And can we make you do eight hours of community service or pay a fine or do both? Um, and, you know, but if you continue to engage in this behavior, we'll arraign you and we'll move you through the system. But that's the way I want to think about it is how are we helping people? Like we can be punitive when it comes to, I, I I'm not necessarily even really believing this, but I'd be more inclined to allow you to use words like punitive when we're dealing with violent, serious crimes. But when you're talking about if if substance use is truly a, a health issue, responsibility isn't even the right word. We're not even using the right words. I need to get you help. And what I think is different is as the DA, the DAs of the past, we don't care about you. <laughs> we just, we we claim to care about victims, but we never ask victims what they want because many victims don't want the person ultimately to go to jail. They want to know, why did you choose me when you broke into my house? Can I get the ring back that you stole that was my great-great-grandmother's that she gave to me? And if you are schizophrenic or you know, on, on crystal methadone, get some help, right? Or or there might be people that say, like, can we send them away for life? No, we can't send them away for life. But we, so, but what we need to do is engage the victim in the process. So, Rachel, this was the gist of your campaign, really. 100%. This was your, your, your stump speech. That's right. Um, and you won with it. You I also did. promised, for example, external inquiry boards into, into, uh, into, into officer-involved shootings. Exactly, yep. which sounded terribly sensible to me. Yeah, um, and we did, and, it, and, and we, we're doing it, which, which is which is very interesting. But what happened, Rachel? The day first day you walked into the office, the doors were locked, and no one could find a key. Yes, that was a wonderful. Um, yes, that so was. So what happened? You went from being elected by a landslide. On the basis of this campaign, which mm-hmm. made very clear what your intentions were mm-hmm. and your philosophy, and you wind up at your office and the doors are locked. What happened was it's an office of 300 people that supported a different candidate. They supported the, so the sitting DA decides I'm not running again, but I'm going to run out my term. I, I'm not going to seek another. He was a four-termer. I he think, was a four-termer, yeah. but he said, I'm not going to seek re-election. At which point his sort of prodigal son internally says, I'm going to do it. He supports this candidate, as does the Boston police and all of the local police departments. And um, I then enter the fray. And there are five of us that are running. And everyone in the office supported that candidate. They didn't know who I was. So even though the people of Suffolk County wanted me there, the DA's office didn't necessarily. And the people who might have supported me, because I think there are good people there that believe in there are ways we can do things a little bit differently, or, you know, I serve at the pleasure of whoever the DA is. Um, But I don't think the transition was as smooth as it could have been. And I don't control that. I, I just showed up to work and then had to wait for a key to open my door. How long door. were you waiting? <laughs> I waited like a half an hour. It was funny, um, hum- humbling, certainly, right? But what I can tell you is uh, people look at me and think that I'm incredibly stern and I don't stand for anything. And that's fine. In many ways, I don't. But I want to motivate people, right? Like if you threaten and if you um, like abuse, people aren't probably going to do what it is that you want them to do. I want to give people an opportunity to get on board, right, with what it is I'm proposing. And if they don't, then I can absolutely say to them, well, let's find you another place that you need to work. And I don't mean that disrespectfully. I just mean you're not going to be successful here if you're not going to comply with what it is I'm proposing. I happen to know a lot of great 
people in Massachusetts because I've had some really wonderful jobs. I've been super fortunate. Let's find you a place where you're going to be successful. Okay. You look like an absolute role model to me. Mm -hmm. Strong woman who's been extremely successful at what you do. You ran a brilliant campaign. But the blowback, Rachel, has been horrific from left and right. Yeah, it's really, yeah. Including from the the, um, the police federation sure. and various other, other you know, places yeah. that I wouldn't expect it to come from because they knew what they were getting. Yeah. And including your father's involvement. Tell us, Rachel, about the, 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 the blowback. Yeah. Yes. So I think what was what was interesting was, so I did, I got pushback from some of my supporters that got me into office who said, like, on day one, we want you to go in there and fire everyone. And it's like, well, wait a minute, I can't do that because I actually need a staff to like run our office, right? I'm not going into court every day. Um, So they started, you know, on social media, blasting everything that the office did. And meanwhile, I showed up on the first day and couldn't even get into my office, right? So they had already been saying like, on day one, you aren't doing enough. And I'm like, can I just get in my office? Right, okay, number one. Number two, Boston Police Patrolmen's Association, I understand their frustration, but to your point, I love saying to them, but I told you exactly who I was going to be. Like, why are you acting surprised? I am the exact opposite of every elected official who never takes a position on anything, like just shakes their head and says like, well, what do you think? And then gets in office and turns into this person that you're like, who the hell is that? Right. I told you if I win, I will do the following things. Mm -hmm. I was so bold as to put it in writing when I was a candidate. And then I won, and then I won again, and then I got an office, and then I put it in writing to the tune of 60 pages with data, evidence, like links. Yes, you're big into evidence-based data, aren't you? Exactly, to support what it is I'm saying. It's just Mm. not a mandate. It is is what what I see the future as being, right? So what is beautiful, though, about all of these flare-ups, because there was a flare-up with the governor, with the... Oh, big flare-up. With the Secretary of Public Safety, with ICE, and with the Boston Police Patrolmen's Association. When I tell you that we have strong relationships now, I mean it. I was on the phone with the president of the Boston Police Patrolmen's Association at the airport before I flew in to see you guys today because I said to him, I want you to hear from me. I'm going to be issuing a statement about the protesters that were just arrested. We're going to... We're going to be filing some things because we're not happy with the way the judge handled it. And I know you aren't going to be happy, but what you aren't going to do is open the Boston Herald and read something I've done that involves you. You're going to hear my voice, and then I'm going to send you, when I land, what my statement is so you can read it before you read it in the newspaper. And that's what I think adults do with each other, right? We have to coexist. We don't have to get along, but I think we can be respectful. I don't think I need to... Um, surprise him with what I'm doing. We have the same situation with ICE. I'm very proud of the fact that myself and the Middlesex DA of woman, Marion Ryan, um, we sued ICE. We filed a preliminary injunction um, a few months back and we were successful. We won our preliminary, our preliminary injunction was granted and ICE is no longer permitted to enter public places and courthouses and civilly arrest people um, who are going into court to handle other business. And remember... So ICE is the organization that we see on television. Yes, that moving is Moving in and, 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 deport, and, yes. and arresting people and deporting yeah. them. Yes, that's correct. Um, ICE is that organization on, uh, uh, in our federal government. And so we are the only place in the United States that has successfully enjoined, like stopped ICE from entering courthouses. So nowhere in Massachusetts can they do that. So we won the battle, not the war. We won the preliminary injunction. We're waiting for a judge to issue something called a declaratory judgment. Um, we hope that is going to support her original granting of the preliminary injunction. Well, but, that's the, would that set a standard for nationwide? Yeah. So yes. I've already received many, many calls from my counterparts across the country for the for the pleadings that we filed in Massachusetts, so that they can, you know, sort of adopt them and and conform them to their requirements in their state. So we made a couple of common law arguments as well as a 10th Amendment argument. Um, but yeah, it's great. I've gotten many, many of my peers saying, send me your pleadings. We want to try to do the same thing here. Um, but even though we won that preliminary injunction, 
I still speak now to the head of ICE. And one of the things that's great about my father is when I was on the cover of, you know, the version of your Irish Times, so the Herald and the Globe and elsewhere, uh, fighting with ICE, my father called me and said, like, okay, now pick up the phone and call Chief Lyons and work work this out. And I said, no, you don't understand. He's being dis- – no, I understand all of it. You felt he was being disrespectful. He th- He thought it was ego for me. And was there a little bit of that? I think there was. I mean, but I think it's more about you will not disrespect this office, right? I know I'm the face of this office, but there are 185,000 people that voted for me to get here and finally have hope, even if this much, that this office means something and they are represented in it. You are not going to disrespect this office. You're going to pick up the phone. You're going to walk over here and speak to me before you write a letter that you hand to the media as you hand it to me at the same time. You would have never done that to a man. I guarantee it because you've never done it before. And so a lot of the disrespect, I would say out loud, it's not about me. It's about the office. But of course it's about it's I'm it, it's happening to me. Like, how can it not be about me? And I look very different um, than the people that have usually had this position. Um, but I'll be honest, in law enforcement, it's not my race that makes me different. It's that there's no women. There's no women at all. And the women that these men are used to dealing with are women that say like, I don't know. What do you think? And I'm not one Seriously. of those women. Oh, yeah. Like, I'm not one of those women. I'm like, no, excuse me. I wasn't finished. Um, we'll talk to you in a minute. What This is what we need. I need these. In, you know, that's the woman I am. Be, and they recognize that they don't, I don't answer to them. It makes them very uncomfortable. I can sit and listen to what it is they have to say and say, like, I appreciate those thoughts. That's wonderful. And then walk out and do what I want to do as the DA because I have complete autonomy. And that's why this election of who your DA is is so important in the United States. It is one of the biggest areas that people's brains are changing about. And we have a movement now happening across the country. The whole staffing situation, Rachel, which started so badly with Mm -hmm. them literally not wanting you on the premises. Mm -hmm. Um, They were leaving, apparently, Mm -hmm. uh, with great regularity and people were sort of compiling new CVs and stuff. Has that settled down? Yeah, I mean, what's interesting is I think any time there's change... Um, of leadership, there's a big turnover. I also think my numbers are, might be a little bit higher than the previous administration. Um, But I also have a lot of people that have gone on the bench, which is wonderful. Um, And there are some people that have left that I've been helpful to them with the jobs that they're getting. And very candidly, if people want to leave after I openly say we're going to treat everyone with dignity and respect and everyone's going to get a fair shake and people are leaving in in droves, um, what type of place was this that I inherited, right? Like, by all means, if you want to go work for the Republican governor in their administration because you're such a reformer who was doing such a wonderful job for the people of Suffolk County, like, bye. I'm, I'm happy to see you go. You've saved me the, 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 necessar- the necessity of firing you at some point as a result of you treating people disrespectfully or doing something egregious or in violation of, you know, Brady or some other um, ethical requirement that we have as prosecutors. So I'm totally fine with people leaving. We're getting really good people in the door. Nobody, it's not a unionized workforce. Like I feel like people are free to, to leave and make their own decisions. We're going to be fine. Getting back to the whole woman thing and the role modeling thing, uh, I read something quite touching that you said to a young girl, a young athlete um, at an underprivileged school. And uh, she asked how you dealt with men who didn't uh, respect you, either in the profession or in sports. And sometimes the girl said she'd work 10 times harder than the boys in class, but no one wanted to listen to her. What did you say to her? Do you remember? Um, them not wanting you is not what we need to focus on. It's what do we want for ourselves? Um, what, how, do, how do we look at ourselves? Like their opinion of us does not matter. It's what we think um, of ourselves. And we just have to have a higher um, regard, right? And that we need to know we are worthy of everything 
um, that there is and that they, I think I might have even called him a clown or something like that. (laughs) What you actually said then was, yeah, we can fight to make sure they respect us, but I want you to respect yourself. When you start with this deep pulsing peace inside of you, knowing how smart you are, how talented you are, how capable and able you are, you're going to look at them and be like, you're a clown. Yes. You're a clown. And and then she started crying. I know. She was great. It was just, it's so exciting for little girls to see women in power, right? Like if you don't see somebody that looks like you, and I don't necessarily mean, I, I, I think in the United States we're just, everything is so race-based in, in our in our country. But when you see somebody that you see part of yourself in, I don't care what it is. If it's that you were a foster child, one glimpse, it gives you hope that you could be that person, right? And so for me, if I can do that for any person, you know, yes, do I love girls and I want more women in in power as displayed by my t-shirt. Member Member of of the the feminist feminist party. party, But I will tell you, it's, it's everyone. I just want people to understand that you are not defined by the worst moment in your life, right? You, you have every opportunity every day to wake up and say, today's going to be different. Like, and, and let's at least be optimistic enough to believe that that's possible. Now, last question, 2016 was a big year for oh, you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> not just because of um, Mr. Our Trump. president, right. Yes, exactly. uh, but also because you were diagnosed with breast cancer. I was, yeah. I was. It was um, June 16th, uh, 2016. I went in, uh, or I received the call that day, but I had gone in for a re- routine mammogram. Um, and like most women that were you know, busy, I had rescheduled and rescheduled. And I went in, thank goodness, they were seeing me about every six months then. And one little irregularity turned into a biopsy, which turned into this. And then I got the call that day and was told, you have breast cancer. Um, You have, you know, I had stage zero in some parts, stage one. And ultimately they said, we're going to remove your, uh, we're going to have to remove your left breast. And I remember breathing for a moment and saying like, nope, you're taking both of them off. And then I literally said, and I quote, I want pornography quality breasts I want them aiming backwards and over my shoulders, and there's going to be a silver lining out of this situation. There will be. Well, they're looking great. They are. (laughs) But you know what's great is I remain, there was a moment there where where I, of course, I was terrified. And I had to have a conversation with my daughter about whether or not I was going to die, right? And so for me... I just said, I am going to remain as optimistic as possible. I'm going to do everything that these doctors tell me I have to do. And I am so blessed to be in the United States, in Boston, with some of the best hospitals and healthcare in the world. Um, I have the best chance possible here. Let's remain optimistic until somebody says, stop smiling. You're no longer, you're dead, right? Or you're no longer here. But I just said, I'm, I have to do this for my kids. And so I did. And I am blessed. Like I, but here's what's great about cancer. If you think I care what the governor or the secretary or the president of Michael Leary from the Boston Police Patrolman's Association or Chief Lyons from ICE says about me, I've survived cancer. Like I can do anything. These people, they're clowns. Right. They all have Irish names. They do. They're good men. They're not clowns. I'm just saying, for me, cancer is what was the big, you know, fear in my life. I fear no man. Can we just have a couple of lines about President Trump? Sure. Um, You know, what I can tell you is I do not agree with um, the overwhelming majority of the things um, that he is doing and saying. I do have to give him... Uh, respect with respect to his criminal justice reform bill, which is doing some really good things. Um, and very, really? it, it is, it is, it, it is. I think as a Republican president, he's done, um, he's made some, some significant improvements in the criminal justice system, um, which I'm happy about. What I will also say is he's our president. And although, you know, I do not agree with many of the things that he's doing, 
I respect the office. And what I like to say to Democrats right now, and this is part of what I'm going to be speaking on the panel about, is we have over 20 candidates currently running for president in the Democratic Party right now. We need to get our act together. We need to decide what it is that's happening because there is a very real possibility that this current president might not be a one-term president. Um, And so I think we need a strategic, uniform approach from our party as to what it is we're going to do. Um, you know, and what I can tell you is when I disagree with what it is the president's doing, I think I use the appropriate forum to do so. It's the courts. And and it just gets me back to, again, how important lawyers are. Are you allowed to say who you'd like to have in the end representing? I Ooh, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I've yes. been asked, I've been asked, um, Kamala Harris is somebody who I've looked up to for a while as a former prosecutor, um, herself, not only a DA, but an attorney general and then the U.S. Senator. Um, Elizabeth Warren, of course, uh, Senator Warren is a friend um, and somebody who I've spoken to her team about her policies on criminal justice reform. Um, you know, I think I've I've been impressed with a couple other people as well. But, um, you know, I just I just want a strong candidate that can, you know, really forcefully uh compete with with the sitting soon. president yeah. To, yeah oh my god yeah. we gotta whittle this down we do yeah rachel rollins member of the feminist party that's right thank you so much for coming into the women's podcast thank you this was amazing i really appreciate it the irish times women's podcast is brought to you by green and black's velvet edition sumptuously smooth dark chocolate Last year, we repealed the 8th in the Republic of Ireland, lifting the constitutional ban on abortion in this country. But in Northern Ireland, as you all know, abortion is still illegal and women and girls are going through terrible times and court cases up there still. According to the Department of Health and Social Care, more than a thousand women from Northern Ireland travelled to mainland UK for an abortion in 2018, which is a 22% increase on the year before. In July, however, an historic window of opportunity opened as a majority voted in Westminster for an amendment tabled by MP Stella Creasy, who we've had on the podcast before, which would see abortion become decriminalised in the North. But this is only going to come to pass if Stormont, which is currently caught in a stalemate, is not restored by the 21st of October 2019. And even if the doors of Stormont do stay closed until then, there's a consultation process which has to go on until March. In other words, there is still some way to go. Ahead of the Rally for Choice in Belfast on Saturday, September 7th, I spoke to activist Rosa Thompson. Rosa, thank you very much for coming on the Women's Podcast. Now, councillors this week voted to welcome and support the uh, March for Choice rally this Saturday. And that must have been great news for all of you in that grassroots movement. Yes, absolutely. We were um, surprised and very, very happy to receive the news One of our organisers, Fiona Ferguson, was the person who uh, brought the motion forward and it just really buoyed up our spirits and helped us to really look forward to Saturday and know that we have support and especially in the absence of Stormont that, you know, our elected representatives are listening to the people. Yeah, and I mean, it, it was a great motion, sort of unequivocal. Um, the motion says, we welcome and support the Rally for Choice on September 7th as an expression of public protest against the current law and the need to ensure decriminalisation of abortion so that no other woman or healthcare professional faces the prospect of arrest and prosecution over the procurement of necessary reproductive healthcare services. And that was voted for by 34 to 14, uh, 14 voting against. Obviously, that was the DUP and the TUV. Um, so to have that support means a lot. So what are you going to be doing on Saturday and what is it going to... You're waiting for this October 21st deadline. We don't know what exactly is going to happen in the meantime, but what are you trying to do in terms of visibility and getting out there on the streets? That is exactly it. That is exactly what we're doing on Saturday. We want to have as many people as possible on the streets, regular people who are turning up and showing up They're going to be making noise, they're going to be shouting, they're going to be protesting, and they're going to be saying, we want, first of all, we want decriminalisation, but more than that, we want access for anyone who needs an abortion at any time, and for whatever reason, we want, uh, you know, the regulations to be put in place so that people can access the healthcare. Um, There are going to be so many people there, we're really looking forward to it. We've got 
a samba band, Tindambaran, uh, hmm. are going to be there. There's going to be smoke. There's going to be hopefully thousands of people. It's going to be noisy and fun and a great day out. I mean, you have this every year. Just, is there a different sense of the atmosphere this time because you possibly are so tantalisingly close to achieving that goal of a free, safe, legal abortion in Northern Ireland? Or at least the beginnings of that process anyway. Uh, yes, it feels like we're almost across the finish line. It feels like we're almost there. It feels like, um, you know, people are talking more about it. You know, regular folks in their living rooms, in the pubs, in the coffee shops, they're talking about it. Lots more people are clicking, they're interacting with us, mm. you know, clicking on the event, saying they're going to go. Um, our videos, our posts are really, you know, getting lots of attention. And, you know, the political parties, we never had political parties be uh, so involved or so, uh, you know, so eager to work with us or to show up at our rallies before. And now they are also trying to, you know, come along. Uh, everybody. That's it always a good like, sign when the p- politicians are trying to get their faces <laughs> in. We saw that with repeal, definitely. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, we're, we're, we're glad that they're coming along now. I'll, I'll say that much. We're, we're glad they're coming along now. And it just feels like it's the final step in, you know, a long, a long running, you know, demand and it feels like we're we're going to get there. It feels like we're, we're going to get there. Saturday's event is organised by Rally for Choice. It's the Rally for Choice with Northern Ireland's two biggest pro-choice groups, Alliance for Choice and Alliance for Choice Derry. And one of your key speakers is Bernadette McAllister, who's a big hero to so many. So she'll be a very good person to kind of be there and, and get the crowd going. Yes, we're so excited to have her. We couldn't believe it when she said she would come along and you know, as soon as we announced her, uh, you know, our attendance grew and grew and interactions grew and people will be turning up to hear her and to see her because she is just legendary. And she has, you know, she has such a history of fighting for rights and she, you know, she is firmly for women's rights, reproductive rights. And we can't wait to to see what she says on the day. Yeah. Um, I should mention as well that your your rally for choice starts at 2pm at Reiter's Square in Belfast and I know there'll be buses going up from other parts of the Republic of Ireland as well. Um, but there's at the same time the March for Their Lives rally is going to be happening at 2pm beginning at Custom House Square. So this is obviously a pro-life rally which is kind of trying to I suppose, take the wind out of your sails a bit. But but the, I saw that one of your organisers said that you're not interested in a clash or conflict and you want no interaction. Absolutely. So uh, I'll, I'll just say, first of all, we're gathering at one thirty. I'm always eager for people to get there early before we leave at 2, 2 p.m. Um, yes, uh, a number of months after we um, started planning and we had our, our date set and we had sent in all our applications, and I think it was about three or four days after our rally went live on the Parades Commission website, we discovered that uh, Precious Life and March for Their Lives were also um, planning on the exact same day, at the exact same time, and their route, uh, the route that they had planned was not the same as ours. However, there were going to be very many meeting points along the way. So the Parades Commission have instructed us to curb um, our rally where we're losing a loop and the March of Their Lives have um, been instructed to delay their rally until 3pm. So they're advertising 2 o'clock, but uh, they're going to gather in Custom House Square from 2 o'clock until 3 o'clock. We are absolutely not interested in clashing with them. We are not interested in interacting with them. We are firmly looking forward for the women and anyone who can get pregnant in Northern Ireland, our our future. That's what we're there for and we won't be paying them any attention yeah. on the day. I should just mention that Bernadette Smith from Precious Life, who was organising the March for Their Lives rally, has said we're expecting thousands of people from every tradition to attend the march because people are outraged that the Parliament at Westminster has hijacked the democratic process and sought to impose abortion on the people of Northern Ireland. So just to get that other side in there, there is, as there was down here, plenty of people who disagree um, with the idea of women having abortion rights. Can I just mm-hmm. ask you... Um, Rosa, how you yourself got involved because it touches people in so many different ways. So what's your own involvement with this cause? So, uh, yes, um, we've all, all of the people who I work with, we've been touched by the abortion issue, whether we've had one ourselves or whether we've um, supported someone through travelling or through taking the pills at home. Um, and I got involved um, about 10 years ago. I started with the Belfast Feminist Network and um, 
just, uh, you know, interacting on Facebook and then starting to go to events that they were running. And then I came across the Alliance for Choice and um, I started to volunteer with them and I've gone to events for them. And it just feels like comradeship. Yeah. It's like we were all in this together and it felt like I found a home because everybody else really, really cared about this issue that has really, really affected me. You you can't you you can't imagine a person having to leave their home, their maybe their kids, their work and fly off and have a medical procedure and come home and not be touched by that. Mm. So for me I've been so passionate about this for years and I um really my favourite part is going to rallies. Mm-hmm. Um and I, I went to my first one in two thousand and fifteen and I was hooked. Completely hooked. They're they're wonderful. So I'm I'm yeah committed. Well, um, I I hope it all goes really really well. As I said, I think you'll get a lot of support from the Republic. We we as soon as we repealed the eighth, we started saying the North is next. The North is next, and that was our our next rally call. So you have a a great deal of support down here, and we're so um, delighted that the likes of Stella Creasy and other people in in Westminster have helped to bring this about. Uh, like you say, it's unfortunate that Stormont wasn't the one to do it, but well, yeah. you'll take whatever you can get, I suppose. Um, yeah. And I, st- I suppose there's still that question mark over October 21st. Uh, are you nervous or are you feeling confident that, I mean, with the Brexit stuff all happening, you know, it may be more likely that it, it, you know, that Stormont will not open and therefore they'll have to go ahead with the legislation. Yeah, the, the Brexit stuff makes everybody just that little bit more nervous because who knows what could happen? Um, nobody knows what could happen. But most of us, I suppose, are quietly confident that Stormont won't sit before the 22nd of October. But again, there's always that small possibility that something could happen. Um, but uh, I really can't see any deals being done and anybody sitting in Stormont on the 22nd or the 21st of October. So, um, But we are a bit nervous, I have to say. The consultation that Westminster have imposed upon us is also making people a bit nervous um, because we need, you know, at the end of the consultation period, at the end of March when it's expected, we need it to say that provision and access will be, you, you know, all over Northern Ireland and it will be not just in exceptional circumstances. It will be anyone who needs or wants an abortion is able to access one. So the consultation period makes me more nervous than getting to the middle of October, to okay. be honest. So we'll get to October 21st and then we'll start worrying about that. But hopefully yeah. by next March, everything <laughs> might be might be sorted. Um, it's been really great talking to you. I wish you all the best for the weekend and you have all our support on the Women's Podcast um, and good luck. I hope it's sunny as well, which always helps when you're out Fingers crossed. with comrades. Okay, thanks very much, Rosa Thompson. Thank you. And that's it for today. Thanks to our guests, Rachel Rollins, Deirdre Falvey and Rosa Thompson. Remember, you can subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. We're on Spotify, Acast and all good podcast apps. If you want to get in touch, we're on Twitter and Facebook at IT Women's Podcast or email us on thewomenspodcast at irishtimes.com. The Women's Podcast is produced by me, Roisin Ingle, and by Jennifer Ryan with JJ Vernon on sound. I'm Roisin Ingle, and until next time, thanks for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.